T-shirts for the 2020 Mac DevOps Conference will be on sale for the next two weeks. So this is your chance to buy a T-shirt or a hoodie with the Mac DevOps 2020 logo, our coolest T-shirt logo ever. It is the coolest T-shirt ever. So head over to mdoyvr.com, scroll down a little, and click the Buy a T-shirt or Hoodie button. Welcome to the Mac DevOps YVR podcast. This podcast is about the Mac DevOps YVR conference in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. We interview guests and discuss topics around managing Macs using open source software products inspired by DevOps. Our goal is to encourage developers and IT to work together to solve problems for our community. For more information, see our website, mdoyvr.com. This is the Mac DevOps podcast. Hi, everybody. This is JD. I wanted to introduce the MDO YVR podcast. Uh, we're doing something a little unique with this podcast uh, in that we're presenting it in two parts. Our interview with Howard Oakley ran well over an hour and a half, and we didn't want to abridge the wealth of information that Howard is. So we hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the Mac DevOps podcast. I'm joined today by my co-host, the very serious Jack Daniel. How are you doing, JD? I'm doing well, Matt, and I'm not taking this all that seriously. <laughs> I think you should take it more seriously. Okay. Today we are joined by an amazing guest. I've been a longtime fan, Howard Oakley. How are you doing, Howard? Hi, yes, thank you very much indeed. Excellent. I have been following your blog posts for a long time and your very prolific Twitter posts. Um, it's amazing to finally meet you. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. How is everything in the UK? Are you on the Isle of Wight? Yes, it's beautiful, it's sunny, it's um, tea time, and um, the world is relatively peaceful if you ignore everything that's happening on the mainland, <laughs> which is what we like to do here. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I spent a, a couple of years in Newfoundland and everybody else was a mainlander and then the islanders were the only happy people, you know, so I, I can uh, understand the sentiment. Everybody that's crazy is off the island. <laughs> so I kind of want to like jump right into uh, your origin story. How did you get to be this prolific blogger who blogs about Mac things? Um, Mac all things, um, and also as well, you're probably one of the few that has a blog with posts about Mac boot up sequences, Mac malware, and uh, paintings. And uh, I mean, how did you get to be so well read? <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of it's by being old. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I started to move into computing in the mid 70s, which gave me a bit of a head start over most other people. Um, I started to get serious about Macs in 1989. Um, some friends of mine um, who had I'd been involved with with IBM PCs um, had um, started to manufacture very large format laser cutters, which they were selling wanting to sell into the sail making industry and um, they contacted me one day and said um, we've got a bit of a problem we've got a, a demonstration of the system coming up very shortly and the programmer that we had 
who was developing the software that drives this from a Mac. In those days, it was an SE. Um, he's just turned around and said that he's got absolutely nowhere. And um, we're wondering if you could help us out. So <laughs> I had about three months um, to learn to program the Mac from scratch using Macintosh Programmers Workshop, MPW. Um, develop this app that um, drove this large format cutter. And once I started doing this, I was completely bitten by Macs. Um, and I then moved in. I developed CAD CAM software for several years. I, I should point out that I was doing all this in evenings and weekends and sometimes through the night because I trade. Um, I'm a doctor, med medical practitioner, um, and I was actually at that time in the Royal Navy, and um, my specialty was a thing called environmental medicine, um, uh, hypothermia, frostbite, things like that, drowning, life jackets. So um, in the evenings and weekends, um, I didn't sleep much, and we, we eventually delivered this app um, that sort of worked and demonstrated the product. I was bitten. And at the same time, I was writing for the computer press um, and fairly quickly um, got contracted. I did some work for Apple Europe um, and I started writing for Mac User, the UK magazine. Um, and I wrote for Mac User from then until shortly after I retired from the day job about six years ago. And I was just looking forward to a lovely retirement where I had um, a fairly comfortable writing, uh, regular writing column um, that was all, I, I always specialized in doing the user Q&A. Um, and um, it's enormous fun because you have to know everything there is to know about everything, or at least you have to know who to ask or where to go. Um, and I was looking forward to this future with Mac user and then Mac user ceased public publishing. So I thought to myself, well, I'm retired. I've got nothing else to do. I've got all these years. Um, I must have had about 10 years of all the, all the stuff that I'd written for Mac user. Um, and it's just going to vanish into thin air now. So I thought the best thing to do is to publish it in a blog. Um, so that was how the blog started up. I had done various Mac development projects of different types. The, the, at that time, the most recent thing that I'd done was actually moving a load of data across from um, PDF files, or sorry, in fact, it was Adobe and design files, structured content in medical records into FileMaker Pro, for example, and that was all done using AppleScript. Um, <clears throat> I'd done some sort of fairly serious programming early with Mac OS X, um, but I dropped um, compiled code development um, because everything went Objective-C, and I, I, I'm not an Objective-C fan. I still find it quite difficult to read Objective-C. 
So um, as the blog developed, I realized there were all sorts of tools that people needed. And perhaps the most obvious, the, the biggest one um, was when Apple introduced the unified log in Sierra. And you open console and there was no previous history of the log. You had this wonderful live stream that was shooting past your eyes faster than you could cope with. <laughs> but if you wanted to find out why that app had crashed 10 seconds ago, it was useless. Um, so I first of all started off um, with AppleScript. I then realized AppleScript was going to be a very, very hard task. Um, and it, that was the time that Swift was first really getting to be practical for writing proper apps. And I took to Swift, um, and it just sort of grew from there. I mean, you have a lot of apps. I think you are slightly more prolific than uh, Patrick Wardle, who has a lot of apps. I think you're definitely more uh, prolific. I mean, when you talk about a grab bag of apps, he's got a lot of apps, but you have so many apps. I was just reviewing them, and I, I've been trying to uh, put them into my uh, on some of my uh, managed workstations using auto package and writing recipes. Some people have recipes. I've been trying to keep up with all the updates, and every time you update them, and sometimes I'm left manually updating them from a website, grabbing them from the website, and then putting them into my monkey repo so I can distribute. Because there's some just lovely little tools that, like, um, I, I'm going to mess up all the names. I mean, you changed some of the names. The Silent Night one, I really like the the binary that you made for Silent Night and the little app. But I mean, it's it's nice that you can, if you know, in my case, I could distribute an app and I could tell a client, okay, double click on this app called Silent Night. It'll tell you visually some things, as well as the command line is really nice because then I can run scripts uh, against Monkey Report or I can run scripts like with ARD or some other way, and I can tell it to go talk to the Silent Night um, uh, binary. Which you know, it's it, you made some really nice apps. That uh, I mean, congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, they're mainly little tools. Some of them have grown into quite big ones. Um, on the log browsing side, for example, I started off with a thing called Log Logger, which was just an Apple script that used the log command to get a text dump of what was in the logs. Um, so people didn't have to learn to type in predicates into terminal. Um, and then I realized that that was actually throwing away all the good, useful, structured stuff in, in the log. So I moved that across to Swift. And now um, Ulbo, it's sort of um, latest incarnation. I, I still keep consolation going, but Ulbo is, is where I really like it. It does things like frequency charts of um, different subsystem um, log entries um, and all, all sorts of other neat analytical stuff. Um, but it, it is just sort of progressed gradually. Um, I really didn't want to have to parse these horrible JSON files that uh, log show spits out if you ask it nicely. Um, but it, it's the best way to work with it. And, and I think people who, who work in terminal lose so much out of the log because all they're getting is they're getting text out of it and and it's a wonderful structured there's just so much you can do with it so 
the, uh, most of these tools start off with a fairly simple idea. I mean, uh, one I've just started working on is mints. A lot of people have complained that um, they, they've got a lot of little tools. I, th I think I don't count them very often, but there's more than 40 now. Um, <laughs> wow. And, and I mean, some of these do very simple little things like um, th there's one that looks at UTIs. Um, there's another that looks at um, Unicode um, text conversions and things like this. And, and I, 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 they, they come up because there's a problem. And what I'm trying to do now is to integrate things better. So there's going to be a shell, which is mints. And within that, there's go I, when I come up with a little tool, I'll put it as, in as another feature in mints rather than yet another app that uh, has to be downloaded and updated and everything. I mean, I wish I could, uh, and maybe I'll, I'll work on this, but uh, trying to take some of your awesome ideas and, and move them to Monkey Report, because lo I love Monkey Report for reporting on all these different things. And I've been trying to uh, incorporate some of your tools, like Silent Night, like the binary, like if you have a GUI app, and then you also have a command line, then that's really nice, because then um, other tools can reference uh, the, the command line. Um, I mean, you just put out another tool called Ar Archi Architect. I mean, these uh, play lovely play on words or Ar Architect or I don't know. How we, architect. Uh, architect. Yeah. Ar architect or ar uh, no, Architect. Yeah, it's, it's... Architect. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's the, 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 I, that started off with the old 3264 bit problem with Catalina, um, whereby I had. Um, 32 bit check, which was a scanner that slowly but very thoroughly went right the way through every bit of executable code it could find and told you if it was 32 bit only. And people said, Well, I'd really like something that did that, that I could just drag and drop an app onto or a dilib or whatever. And um, that was Architect that came up then. But of course, the 3264-bit issue is receding for most people now, um, I hope. Um, and the next question is, is it universal? Does it run native on Apple Silicon? Um, so that, that's the direction that I'm taking Architect into. Um, I'm not sure that 32-bit check um, is ever going to go any further now, but I've just built into Mint's um, a scanner based on 32-bit check, the, the same engine, um, which looks for um, ARM executable code. So you can now start actually scanning applications folders to see which are universal apps, which is a bit disappointing at the moment. How many universal apps we have? or um, I've got 15 now. <laughs> but the, those and, and apples um, are, are the only ones that I've come across, um, which I'm a bit surprised about. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'm an inveterate collector of apps. Um, perhaps <laughs> I just need to, uh, to update some of them. Yeah, it seems that uh, we're forever under the, um, I'll say it, a curse of may we live in interesting times. Apple keeps things interesting. I mean, one one day we're worried about uh, whether we have any 32-bit uh, apps left around the system that aren't going to move over to Catalina. And next moment, we're worrying about if they're universal and we're going to survive this ARM transition. And uh, 
Yeah, it's definitely keep, keeping us on our toes. It's uh, keeping us young, isn't it, Howard? It's wonderful. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. I mean, pe people complain about the pace of development now, but go back to the days of System 6 and System 7, and it was every bit as fast. Um, I, I, I remember developing one of the first um, TrueType apps um, for System 7. Um, and actually working with Apple's TrueType lead, um, but with going back very briefly to these very large format laser cutters, one of the things sailmakers like to do is they like to cut out um, letters and numbers to put on to sales and other things. Um, and TrueType for me was a gift. Um, Postscript was horrible to try to do very large format letter cutting. Um, but TrueType was completely open, and um, yeah, I, I before the release of System 7, um, I was going through all that with Apple's TrueType lead, um, and by the time that System 7 was sort of really getting out there, I was able to cut these things, um, you know, sort of three meter high, figure three, and things like this from a TrueType font absolutely beautiful but the pace of development then was no slower than it is now and in fact if you look back at the number of major versions of classic mac os they came pretty well annually for a period of about five years i think um and yes it was it was breakneck speed we had the huge advantage then of wonderful documentation um, things like the Inside Macintosh book series, and I've still got several of those volumes, and they were absolutely wonderful. And I don't know how Apple did it, um, but they must have had a huge team of technical authors um, who just spent their entire time keeping pace. And there were hundreds of tech notes that were pushed out as well. I mean, when you got a Mac, you got like several binders of documentation about your Mac and all the details about everything. So they were definitely uh, loving the documentation. And did you feel like there was enough for developers at that time when you were looking for information? Or? Then it was, it was absolutely wonderful. If you knew your way around the inside Macintosh series and you had access to the tech notes, um, then you really couldn't go wrong. There was very little that people needed that wasn't thoroughly documented. And was that available um, like on a floppy disk or was that available through a BBA, uh, like a, uh, a website or how are you getting your information? How was new information coming? Like um, a lot of it in those days came over Apple's own network, which was run by GSCO for them, um, which I think was called Apple Link. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which Apple Link. was was the in-house um, communication system and developers automatically went on to it. And of course, that was all done over dial-up modems in those days. Um, and then I got um, the very first Apple um, CD-ROM reader um, and they started uh, distributing, um, I think it was every month or two, um, CDs with all the developer documentation and tools on them. Um, really, really wonderful stuff. It was it was fabulous. But yes, I mean, we, we were we were being inundated with information in those days. 
And how do you feel the developer and documentation is now? I mean, we have WWDC that's online with videos. We have a developer website. Um, is it sufficient? Is it clear? Is it good? Or is it helpful? No. I'm, I'm really sorry, but it is one thing that Apple has dropped dreadfully, and not just for developers, but for system admins as well. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, there's no excuse. Um, WWDC is actually probably the most coherent documentation you get for most things. You get occasional things like APFS, where there's part documentation in a downloadable PDF. Um, but the things that doesn't have in it are probably greater than the, thing, the things it does. There's just so much missing. Yeah, that's where we come to depend on the community. Everybody's uh, reverse engineering or tearing things apart or testing or trying to figure things out. I mean, I've seen it at my Mac DevOps conference where one week we were at the same week as WWDC. People were downloading the new OS and, and you know, installing APFS and then just checking it out, seeing what was there. What was, you know, it's like people like to share their knowledge. And we really appreciate you blogging and sharing your knowledge. Uh, you, you blogged about Catalina and the boot volumes. And I mean, there's been a lot of changes. And for users, sometimes the dark mode versus light mode is the biggest annoying change. But for sysadmins, we're dealing with, you know, okay, this this we went from SIP to now we have read-only volume partitions. We have synthetic mounts. And <laughs> we have to keep catching up with all these new changes and how it might affect how we write software, how we deploy software, how we deploy Macs. I mean, <laughs> lots of change. Well, that, th this is one of the major objectives of the blog because... Um, in the absence of the documentation that we should have, um, the only way that we can get access to that information is by pooling what we have between us. And um, that's one of, one of the most important things to me. Um, I mean, I've just been looking today at LiPo, which is a command tool that people wouldn't have heard about the vast majority of them, but now suddenly becomes really important. And you discover that looking back um, before Mojave, there were two different versions of LiPo. There was the one that was actually supplied with Mac OS, and there was another version that came with Xcode. And the Xcode LiPo um, actually provided a lot more information about supported architectures. And the command, the, the standard Mac OS one was actually a bit useless. And I think it was just a hangover from the PowerPC to Intel transition. So, you know, and, until you realize that, um, you, you, I was just in the process with Architect and um, with this feature in mints um, of using LiPo to check the supported architectures in a universal binary. And then, of course, you discover that if the user isn't running Mojave or later, LiPo is likely to just give them rubbish. <laughs> so all of a sudden, you have to think, well, what can you do? Are you going to use the magic from the file? Well, that tells you that it's a universal binary, but it doesn't tell you what platforms are supported. Are you going to go through and parse that entire Marco file and pull out of it? No. So you're going to really have to trust LiPo. 
And the only way you can trust LiPo is by saying, well, you've got to be running this on Mojave or later. So things like that get really quite important. I noticed in your blog post, you called out the difference between the amazing and awesome file command, which I had to use a long time ago to do some diagnostic testing, troubleshooting, but you, you were showing the output from the file command versus the LiPo command. How are you for determining like the architectures? Uh, how did you like the results of one versus the other or the usefulness? Well, Apple has really recommended LiPo as being the benchmark, and it is the most informative on this. Um, file is great generally, um, but again, it makes you wonder if, if LiPo wasn't supporting detailed information um, before Mojave, it makes you wonder then what file would provide you with, because it was probably using similar um, code. So, um, I mean, that, that's fair enough, because I think Apple had let the universal binary story fade away quietly after the last transition, and it must have been in Mojave um, that they said, right, you know, we actually need this internally, and we know that everyone else is going to be needing it very shortly, so all of a sudden, um, universal binaries become a lot more important, so your tools have got to be more informative. Yeah, I mean, we don't always get a roadmap, and I mean, by not always, we never get a roadmap <laughs> from Apple. But uh, um, you know, when you when you find out that you know there was a, a Next team still running in some kind of office with an Intel machine testing Next in OS Mac OS, you know, uh, you know, and, and then so for them internally, it was never a surprise because they're always testing, and so that transition to Intel was always sort of maybe someone's back pocket, and I guess at some point they realized that we're going to arm and or maybe some visionary thought they're always going to go to arm but somebody probably somewhere had a, a machine with a mac with arm running just as a test machine you know, <laughs> internally I, I think the arm story goes back 20 years to when apple was co-founder of arm um i mean sure um there, there was that immediate need for processors for um portable devices, the Newton in particular in those days. Um, but Apple could, could see the writing on the wall and it had its aspirations. And um, I, I had the great fortune to meet Larry Tesla um, when he was actually on his way to an ARM board meeting um, in London. Um, and I just cannot believe Apple seeing that opportunity. I mean, ARM itself was built not just to produce low-powered processors for things like PDAs originally and mobile phones now, um, but um, the Acorn Risk Machine was a desktop PC. Um, it, it was intended to demonstrate how well you can do with a risk processor, um, not a low-power system. We'll we'll see. Uh, I mean, WWDC gave us a lot of information about Apple Silicon and uh, the changes, um, and we're all holding our breath to see what the actual hardware looks like and what they're going to ship. And are you uh, a betting man? Are you any guesses as to whether they're going to put out a nice low power laptop or uh, something uh, more beefier? As as some people suspect, the ARM chip is actually quite speedy if not worried about thermals. But any guesses? Um. <laughs> I know no more than anyone else does, but if I were Apple, I would hit the low power 
applications first. I would definitely go into the low-end MacBook Pros, um, the MacBook Air, and possibly bring out a MacBook um, built around Apple Silicon because we've got no MacBook at the open um, at the moment. That's a, a convenient void to be filled. Um, but I'm sure they'll get them on the desktop. I mean, thinking back to the um, Intel transition, um, when we had our DTKs for that, um, which were based on one of the tower systems, when we sent those back, we got as a, a sort of reward for, for doing what we'd promised to, um, we got an iMac, flat screen iMac back. And it wouldn't surprise me if there's um, a low end iMac. I, th I think that they're going to start off with, with the cheaper systems because of, of the, the cost, the economy savings they've got with um, their own socks. Um, and I think the, the low power users to begin with, I don't think we're going to see a Mac Pro replacement for a little while. <laughs> Yeah, they, uh, they just uh, made great pains to put that out in the world. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think a lot of the Mac Pro users and, and possibly even iMac Pro users at the moment um, want that Intel um, compatibility there. And of course, the other thing depends on what happens over Windows. Um, there was still that, that fascinating, tempting announcement from Parallels in WWDC that um, they are um, partnering with Apple in a new development and they can't say anything about it, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> did you not see that? I that did not see that at all. I missed Parallels that in the, uh, the, the fleet. Uh, it was absolutely uh, wonderful. It was We've, we, we've got this wonderful secret and we can't share it with you yet. Um, so, and, and of course, Apple's own presentations were complete. The, the word Windows, I don't think, appeared anywhere except in the context of Mac Windows. Um, they, they demonstrated Microsoft Office, um, which was most impressive, but didn't mention Microsoft Windows, which I just thought was so carefully skirted around. So I, I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see what happens there. Well, that one session yeah. about the, you know, I, I guess Apple Silicon, where they talked about the boot volume security, the, the security of different volumes could be separate. And people suggested that perhaps that would pave the way to have different OSs and different things on there. But they certainly didn't go into details. No, there's, there's a lot of carefully left voids there that will be filled in over the coming months, I'm sure. I, I mean, this is absolutely wonderful. Lots of people are saying, you know, this is the end of the Mac. It's all going to be iOS and it's all going to be running on the same processors. Actually, I think this is probably the most exciting thing that's happened to the Mac since the Intel transition. Um, which in itself was groundbreaking. Not that PowerPC were rubbish, but I think Apple had reached a dead end, particularly with laptops, um, yeah. and that needed to be done. And it was a very important move at the time. And yeah. I think for Apple's future, um, I think this is just so exciting. And it, it, for anyone who's interested in what goes on inside their Mac, you can't get any more exciting 
than a completely new processor um, and everything else to support it. I mean, Apple makes mistakes like everybody does, companies do, but I mean, they, they, they take chances. I mean, that APFS rollout midstream in iOS was remarkable. Like, oh, yeah. In a point release, they, oh, now your file system's APFS. And then, you know, APFS for Mac had a f maybe a few bumps in the beginning. And I still see some machines that have APFS file corruption and are toasted. But uh, for the most part, APFS is pretty solid. And, I'm more of a file system uh, storage guy, XN person. And so I'm always excited by the possibilities of where it may lead. I mean, it's not going to be a, a, a ZFS, ZFS replacement perhaps, but um, they're getting better and better. And I mean, what do you, you've written about uh, the Catalina and that. What do you think about how they split up the volumes and how they're moving now to uh, with the big server, how they said they're going to, it's going to run from a, like a read only file system or like a snapshot. I mean, they're doing, they're changing and, and making changes all the time and for security and hopefully for, for performance. Yeah. I, and I, I think for the vast majority of users, this sort of thing is going to be a huge benefit. Um, of course, it's going to deeply offend anyone who tinkers with their system volume. Um, and y y yes, you will be able to do it, but you're then going to be left um, with an unsealed system volume, which isn't going to be a good place to be, I don't think. Um, you know, it's, we had the same with Catalina. I had users who came to me and who said, look, you know, I, I have this directory at my um, root level. Um, you know, why, why can't I do this in Catalina? Um, well, actually, you, you're better off finding a way around it. Yeah, but this is how I like to do it. Well, I know you like to do it that way, but you really, <laughs> there, there are other ways you can do this and you will like those much better in the long run. It's overcoming those problems. Uh, and the, there's always going to be the occasional person who says, oh, I just can't do it. The, 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 there's some folk who've um, said that they had problems, for example, with um, uh, custom screen setups um, where they need to put additional files into some of the um, screen configuring directories in the system. Um, and in fact, Apple has already provided for that and they can put that into um, the library folder instead of having to put it into system. So uh, Apple, Apple isn't oblivious to, to users, but sometimes it, there does need to be a bit of flexibility. I mean, they've been making a lot of changes to protect us from uh, problems with software as well as malware. I mean, I remember last year there was this this uh, weird issue that happened to only avid editors in Hollywood, and that's where it sort of came to the press. And it yeah. turned out that it was, of course, editors, especially avid editors, were running old versions of the OS. And the Google Chrome yeah. updater had overwritten a part that was not being protected by systems that were too old to have SIP, or they had turned it off for an eGPU or something. And you know, and that that kind of thing was protected in later OSs, obviously. So uh, people <laughs> were, but so I mean, mistakes get made in software, and so SIP is there to protect it. And now with this read-only volume, I mean, uh, I mean, Apple's making changes and it affects us. I'm running Monkey, and you want to run a profile command, but that's going to be turned off. But there's a malware vector where people are getting tricked into installing MDM profiles and getting you know malware. So it's it's a 
things change. Sysadmins, uh, no matter how old we are, we're used to doing things in a certain way and it's hard to change, but that's the exciting thing. Like you said, it's every year we're changing, learning new ways of doing things and we have to lean on each other as a community um, um, to change to change how we're doing things and see how the new ways are doing them. Um, um, you're on the you're on Twitter. Are you on the Mac admin Slack as well, or are you? Um... No, I, I I just don't have time to cover everything. Very sadly, but <laughs> Twitter's a good place. Twitter's a good um, place. <laughs> it, loads of my friends say how toxic Twitter is, and I never found it. I mean, you get involved in the occasional spat and and things, but I I actually find Twitter. Um, it depends who you follow and who follows you. If you get a b into bad company on Twitter, yes, um, yes, there are some people whose lives are destroyed by it. Um, but if you're very careful, and I, I just have such a delightful um, set of followers, and um, it, I, I love Twitter. It's great. And there are an amazing number of Apple engineers um, who will pop up every now and then and just give you a gentle nudge in the right right direction and there, there are two or three who are really helpful who use twitter a great deal um and that is really lovely they really um, uh, and, popped out of the woodwork i thought with wwdc there was a bunch of new ones that i hadn't noticed and they oh, all yeah. popped up and said i'm so proud of my team and i'm so proud of what we did and i'm like oh noted follow <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you probably not hear anything more about uh, from them except what they cooked um on saturday night or whatever but no i it's, uh, it, it's to me it's a very good way if you're if you're careful and selective and you don't fall into a bad crowd and there's the blog um and um i do have quite a few people who read the blog who know an awful lot more than i do and who again are kind and gently correct me when i get things wrong which is quite common um otherwise you don't learn well i think that's wonderful we can't be afraid of making mistakes as long as we're uh we have a kind heart and we're doing our best and uh, we're putting out information that we're learning and uh, people can suggest corrections and different ways of doing things and it's lovely yeah it's that interaction um you know sometimes i i I'll post an article and I hear absolutely nothing. Um, and you just think, you know, has anyone read this? And I, I look on WordPress and yeah, yeah, you know, it's been read by 500, 1,000 people. And you think, well, did none of them respond to it at all? And <laughs> it goes blank. And then you get these really bizarre things where you, um, I, I put up um, that recent little snippet about, um, whether it's Mac OS 10.6, 10.16 or 11, um, was, was culled from a very, very short um, tweet, which was forwarded very kindly. Um, and um, I, I don't know, 10, 15,000 people have read that now. Um, you know, it, it hit wow. Hacker News. <laughs> and this is one of the strange things that you learn about writing blogs. You know, you, you're put weeks of research into a particular article or you've been coding for days and days on a particular release of something you post it and well, it's the sound of one hand clapping <laughs> um, and then you th I, I, th there's always days i like to post one mac article and one painting article each day 
Um, and there are days when I'm thinking, oh my God, what am I going to write about the mackerel? And you just think, oh, look, that, that's a useful little piece that you sort of um, uh, put in, in the back of the mind. And it's something you need to write about. So you spend 10 minutes, you knock up an article that's about three or 400 words long. And within a few hours, it's all over Hacker News and people are just all over it. I do not understand. And what's even more bizarre, not so much with the Mac stuff, it tends to happen a bit, but with the painting pieces in particular, I'll have an article that I wrote maybe a year or two ago and has been read by perhaps um, a couple of dozen people. And then all of a sudden it will go viral. And it's where one person has read it and posted an article somewhere else and said, you know, this is this is absolutely wonderful. And it's funny. And you, you get articles like that that have have their viral moments that keep repeating. Um, and there's one in particular on a, on a German narrative painting, absolutely wonderful painting from a, um, an artist who's been completely forgotten. Um, and every so often there'll be a big rush on it. And I'll have five, 10,000 views in the space of a couple of days. And then no one looks at it again for another two months. It's quite funny. Well, you have a, a, an amazing website, the Eclectic Light Company, uh, eclecticlight.co, uh, with uh, amazing categories. You have Macs, Mac problems. <laughs> That's two different categories. <laughs> and then you have art and painting. Uh, I like the Mac problems. <laughs> 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 well that was that was the original core of it. it it was built upon all the question and answer stuff um and the other bits and pieces that i'd written all those years ago for mac user and all that stuff is still there um you know if if you're having a problem with an old version of mac os there there's there must be about three three and a half thousand mac articles on there perhaps a bit more than that now Wow. Hello again. As I mentioned when we introduced this episode, this is part one of our interview with Howard Oakley. He is uh, a wealth of information, and please uh, check back with us next week for the second half of this interview. Thank you to our Mac DevOps YVR 2020 sponsors. Our sponsors for Mac DevOps YVR, the conference 2020. Mac Stadium, our platinum sponsor, thank you so much for helping us out. Sauce Labs, our gold sponsor. Simple MDM, our silver sponsor. And Adigy, our bronze sponsor, as well as Elastic, our community sponsor. Thank you so much. Uh, we couldn't do it without you, and uh, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today for the Mac DevOps podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to our co-hosts. Today's episode was edited by J.D. Strong. Please like and share this podcast on your favorite podcast service. We're joined today by my frisky, lovely. No, I don't like that. <laughs> I was trying to think of something. <laughs> think of frisky something is not the word I would use. <laughs>